The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. If you were Scottish in the 1700s, you knew the story of Flora MacDonald. Flora was spoken of as if she was the stuff of legend or myth, a heroine in the eyes of her countrymen and women who stuck her neck out during one of the darkest days in Scotland's history. After the thwarted Scottish rebellion at Culloden in 1746, Flora assisted in the smuggling of the Bonnie Prince Charles Stuart out of the country before he could be captured by the British for plotting to overthrow the crown. Even though she likely didn't support his efforts, Flora had just helped the man for whom Scotland had just charged into battle, costing it more than just a shot at the throne. It lost its clan system and its heritage, with many Highlanders heading to the American colonies to start anew. After a brief imprisonment for her effort, an infamy etched on her name, Flora, like many, made that same journey across the ocean, finding herself in North Carolina on the cusp of yet another rebellion. Here in the colonies, Flora's reputation will garner her attention, maybe even a little bit of fame, but revolution eclipses everything and everyone and she will soon find herself in the same position as every other Scottish Highlander in North Carolina. An outlander with a choice to make. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents we're exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, 
the Frasers land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. This week on the show, we're going to delve into the story of Flora McDonald, a real person who was prominently featured on a recent Season 6 episode of Outlander. In the series, Flora is seen as a celebrated figure, a celebrity of the colonial age, known for helping the unsuccessful Charles Stewart flee Scotland after his Jacobite rebellion was brought to its knees in 1746. In the American colonies, however, she wasn't a champion of the latest group of rebels looking to break free of their leader. Instead, Flora was an outspoken loyalist, a mouthpiece for the British movement to subdue the gathering storm of revolution among its colonists. So how could someone so associated with one infamous uprising now be such an ardent supporter of putting another in its place? It's a question that Claire and Jamie reckon with in this recent episode about Flora, and one that we're going to address today as well. With 250 years of hindsight, it seems like a no-brainer to us that we would have thrown our support behind the rebellion against the British crown, a risk that laid the groundwork for the American experiment that is still unfolding today. But in the 1770s, with the pressure of such a choice bearing down on your life and your loved ones, it could not have been that easy. In a world so far from your own, how does someone choose where to place their loyalty, which meant more to Scots than perhaps anything else? That's just one of the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Episode 6, The Ballad of Flora MacDonald. To talk about the legacy of Flora MacDonald and other Scottish figures in colonial North Carolina, I'm joined today by Kimberly Sherman, a lecturer in history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and Cape Fear Community College. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Hunter. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, before we jump into our discussion of Flora, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners just a little bit of your background, because you have some personal and some professional history with the very history that we're talking about on this show. Yeah, so I grew up here in Wilmington, and uh, my family has long roots here um, on both sides. So it's quite often that I'll be studying something regarding local or North Carolina history and, and find some connection somewhere. But I, my journey took me eventually, uh, education-wise, overseas to Scotland, where I spent a few years working on my PhD at the University of St. Andrews. And when I finished that in 2018, as luck would have it, I ended up back in Wilmington and uh, kind of have been reestablishing roots here and enjoying being part of the local history community and teaching at Cape Fear Community College and, and also at the university some as well. And uh, yeah, so I've been working on a book that is largely based on my PhD thesis on the immigration of Scots to North Carolina in the 18th century. And I attempted to bridge the gap between 
the Highland and Lowland Scots and some of their experiences in politics and culture and building the economy of North Carolina. And of course, that intersects very well with a lot of the popularity of Outlander. I am quite a bookish individual myself. I actually am a co-owner in a local bookstore, an independent bookstore here in Wilmington, and it is called Ghost Hill Press. It's located over in the Cargo District. I'm excited to have you on the show, and I'm excited to talk to you about Flora McDonald. It's something that you and I have talked about before, and she's such a rich character in the history of both Scotland and colonial North Carolina, and I thought it was just too good of an opportunity not to talk about her story because she was just on the most recent episode of the sixth season of Outlander. We're recording this right after the fifth episode of the sixth season, which was titled Give Me Liberty. And Flora is really the centerpiece. She was a character in Diana Gabaldon's books. Claire and Jamie go and attend a party that Flora is uh, attending. It's in her honor. And so I wanted to talk to you about Flora and dig into who she was and why she is this kind of colonial celebrity that we see her as on the show and in history. So who was Flora when she's uh, a young woman in Scotland? Yeah, so Flora McDonald was born in 1722 in the Outer Hebrides, which is kind of the outermost part of all the islands on the west coast of Scotland. And she was born into the McDonald clan or Clan Donald, as it was also known, which happened to be the largest clan in Scotland. So they had a lot of wealth and a lot of power coming into the 18th century and certainly a lot of kinship connections with not only that one clan, but also with other clans as well. Her father happened to die when she was an infant. So from early on, she was kind of placed into the care of a lot of other kinsmen. And she was raised and tutored in the homes of a number of family members, including several women that were part of that same kind of family network. Uh, she first live, lived with uh, Lady Clan Ranald, and then with Lady Margaret, who happened to be the wife of Alexander MacDonald of Sleet, who was the laird or landowner for part of the MacDonald estate on Skye. And so eventually she kind of hops from island to island, essentially being brought up in kind of how the Highland gentry were living at that time period, having some semblance of an education within that home probably some tutoring and that sort of thing. And some have speculated that she probably ended up spending some time, maybe as a teenager in Edinburgh, uh, which was the capital of Scotland, still is today, a very, very education-focused center. Um, and she probably would have spent some time there to kind of finish off her education and to spend some time in high society before heading back to um, the Highlands. And this was not uncommon for what we call a kind of a gentry class, the landed individuals who had some wealth to their background. Um, they would often send their children off to Edinburgh for kind of boarding school reasons or to go off to college and things like that. And we know that uh, later on, one of the uh, famed English writers of the time, Samuel Johnston, uh, said that she was a woman of soft features, gentle manners, kind soul, and elegant presence. Those are nice um, things to say about someone. Exactly. Yeah. So her connections with uh, Jamie Fraser in terms of like the, the book, of course, this is laid out there that they might have grown up together. I did a little bit of digging into thinking about would the, the Frasers have been um, possibly friends of the McDonald's and that sort of thing. And I don't know. It's interesting because the, the Frasers that Jamie is a part of are from Clan Fraser of Lovett, and they 
our Highland Fraser clan. There's another Fraser group that's actually from the lowlands of Scotland. And the Frasers of Lovett actually were largely based in Aberdeenshire and kind of around Inverness. So kind of a different region of Scotland, but who knows, there could have been some connection there in theory. And that's the beauty of fiction, that uh, you can kind of bridge those far-flung places. Now, what do we know about where Clan MacDonald stood as you start to see the rumblings of this Jacobite rebellion? Yeah, the, the Scottish Highlands were undergoing a lot of change already before the 45. Of course, there had been a Jacobite rebellion in 1715 as well. And in the decades prior to the 45, there was already a lot of social and economic change happening. Clanship was largely on the decline even before the 45, and agriculture was becoming increasingly commercialized. Uh, But Clan MacDonald, what we we know of the Sleet branch that she was largely connected to on Skye, that branch of Clan Donald fought in the 1715 rebellion. But during the 1745 rebellion, they take a little bit of a different stance. It seems that the McDonald's composed two independent Highland companies in support of the British government. So they actually support the Hanoverians, um, not the Jacobites, during the 1745 rebellion and would have fought with the British government at Culloden. And this actually allowed them to keep their land largely intact after the conflict and there might have been some evidence. It's kind of one of those things where they they put their allegiance with that side, but what was actually happening in their hearts might have been a different matter. There's some evidence that they might have been somewhat sympathetic to the Jacobite cause. We know that some of her cousins were likely involved uh, in the 45 and possibly fought at Culloden as well. Well, that's an interesting place to begin this because her story, despite her family maybe not supporting what becomes that Charles Stewart, you know, led rebellion, she becomes so intimately tied to it. Her notoriety is tied to him and what she does for him after this failed rebellion. So how do they cross paths? Yeah, the story is that Flora was visiting the island of Vimbecula, which is not far away from Skye at the time, in the summer of 1746. So this would have been after Culloden, after the rebellion has pretty much been squashed. The Highland clans that were in support of the Jacobites are on the run. And Charles Edward Stewart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, as he's often known, was on the run. And the story is that he and his aides found refuge on the island of Vimbecula after that battle. And... So at the time, one of the aides that was along with him was a distant kinsman of Flora's, and supposedly he sought out her help because of her connections to the McDonald's, uh, particularly her stepfather, Hugh McDonald, and Alexander McDonald of Sleet. They were both, of course, pro-government men who had those ties that could actually potentially get them the pass that they needed, the permit that they needed to reach the mainland and then to go from Skye over Um, to a a transatlantic vessel that would take them off to to Europe. So the idea was that maybe she could get that kind of link to help this kind of nudge along in a more proper direction, I guess you could say, a more legal direction. But of course, he is a notorious person. He's kind of public enemy number one, you might say. So some reports say that she was kind of hesitant to do this because obviously it could have been very risky for herself and her family. The other sources say that her stepfather, uh, Hugh McDonald, might have been in on the scheme a little bit and kind of, you know, like willing to turn a blind eye to the whole thing. Um, The permits were obtained and Flora, along with a crew of six men and two servants, went along with the prince to the Isle of Skye. 
And then he was taken to the town of Portree on uh, the coast and made his escape from there. About two weeks later, Flora and another relative are arrested and transported to the Tower of London. And luckily for her, for, for the most part, her connections are able to get her a place that is much more um, commodious than the Tower of London, which was a pretty horrendous place to be. That sounds very ominous for the time. Exactly. So that's the one last place you want to be is to go to the tower. So through her connections, she's really got some great influential people in her family circle. And also through her legal counsel, they are able to get her detention moved to uh, outside of the tower. She lives in basically a townhouse in London under the supervision of a king's messenger. And she stays there until her release in 1747 under the Act of Indemnity. So it was like a colonial house arrest. (laughs) Right, right. So you mentioned that she is going to be confined for her role in this. But what happens between Flora's release, really, and her immigration to America? Because she's going to follow that same path that so many Scottish did. So she returns back to Scotland in 1747. And in the next couple of years, she does what a lot of young women would have been expected to do. She gets married and she marries a distant kinsman. His name is Alan MacDonald as well. So were they related? They, they were. They were kind of like cousins in a sense. I'd have to work out exactly how they were related, but distant cousins would have been acceptable. So at the time, it was like if you were at least second cousins, then it was proper within the church to be able to be married. So she marries Alan MacDonald. They set up house at uh, Kingsborough, which is on the Isle of Skye. And Alan had inherited the tack or the lease for that estate there that was part of the Sleet estate. Um, And he's essentially an estate manager in a way, a factor there. A lot of sources say that Alan McDonald was maybe a bit more of a soldier than a gentleman and maybe not as adept at being a good businessman and farmer. So I think what the the hint was is that he wasn't exactly the best manager for their finances and being able to keep up with the estate. Of course, he had a lot of things to deal with that were changing at the time. I mean, the economy is changing very quickly. Agriculture is changing. And not to mention just kind of the Uh, everyday possibilities of bad weather and other things that would affect crops and livestock and so forth. So uh, they start to fall further and further into debt with their landlord. um, And he had unwisely purchased a large herd of cattle that he really couldn't afford and couldn't pay back. And like a lot of other Scots, the McDonald's as a whole are experiencing sharp rises in rents. They are experiencing the prices of their agricultural goods plummeting. So they're not making as much money. And in 1771, an episode known as the Black Spring occurs, and this was a severely cold and snowy, like late winter, early spring period that led to a lot of high mortality amongst cattle herds around Skye and elsewhere. So that investment he had made in all that livestock, unfortunately, is is largely lost. And this affected not only Alan and, and Flora, but numbers of other McDonald families. So we do start to see kind of a larger group of people beginning to think about things like immigration. As you were saying all of this, one thing that that I didn't even think about, because we're thinking so much in the future of her being in, in the American colonies, but is she a notorious figure during this time where her and her husband are going through what is essentially a, an economic hardship? Absolutely. There there was a certain amount of celebrity that she had. Definitely one of the, the examples that I gave earlier, the, the quote about her manner and so forth from Samuel Johnson, 
Um, Samuel Johnson, as well as James Boswell, who were well-known writers of the time period from England, they were traveling all about the islands and the, the highlands of Scotland. And, and you can find a lot of their work actually digitally online now. But their tour essentially led them to Flora. And there were a lot of stories of them kind of getting to see the the sheets and so forth that were on the bed that Bonnie Prince Charlie slept in whenever he was being ushered away from Skye and, and things like that. So there was a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, a little bit of tourism actually going on there in the 18th century. That's interesting. So what do we see being the factor that that pushes her and, and Alan to a trip to the colonies and, and transitioning their lives? I mean, again, she is such a notable figure, but what makes them take that plunge? So we know that the kind of larger wave of immigration that they are part of had really started up around 1771-1772 and not only had the McDonald's started to move but there were also larger waves of groups from Sutherland which is kind of in the northeast of Scotland and other areas that were starting to make their way to North Carolina and of course Scots had a really long heritage already in the colony uh, the first Highland group to come over was in 1739 and so there are a lot of connections between North Carolina and Scotland already. And people like Alan McDonald were often considered to be the leaders of some of this. So I don't know exactly what his role was in the group that ended up getting on the Balliol in 1774 and coming over to Wilmington, but certainly they just decide, well, this is possibly a better opportunity than what we've got here. North Carolina seemed to be a place where there was unlimited opportunity for a lot of people, including the McDonald's, Flora and, and Allen, who, who don't own land, they're renting land during this whole period. Um, they might have then the opportunity to own land outright and have that kind of independence and the economic security that would come along with that. Do we know if, if she and Allen specifically immigrated through Wilmington? So more than likely, the Balliol, when it arrived in late 1774, would have made port at Brunswick because it was a large transatlantic vessel. And the only port on the Cape Fear that could have handled a vessel of that size would have been Brunswick. It was also where all the customs were cleared and so forth. So it's likely that they landed there. And then it's possible that she might have gotten on a smaller vessel with the family and they might have come up river to Wilmington. Um, I have no direct evidence to say how much time she spent here in Wilmington or, you know, to any indication as to what she did while she was here or if she was here for any long period of time. And as we've talked about through our previous episodes, the Scots that come to the colonies and specifically North Carolina are going to spread out all over the colony. And so where does Flora and Allen settle and what is their life like in those early years of being in the colonies? We know that they make their way up to Cross Creek, which is a settlement predominantly of Highland Scots on the upper Cape Fear River, um, close to what is today Fayetteville and the Fort Bragg area. And uh, there they spend a little bit of time. And then eventually in the next year or so, they are moving towards uh, Anson County and they set up a farm there called Killigray. So they're, they're starting to put down roots, similar to what we see with the Frasers on Outlander. Absolutely. 
Now, one of the things that we do see, especially in this recent episode, is a real embracing of Flora's legacy. She is a hero. She's considered really a celebrity, as we've been calling her in this period. But we see a ball being thrown in her honor. So what was her relationship to the colonists? Were they really kind of falling at her feet and and really impressed by this story that has now been, you know, kind of driving her notoriety for almost 20 years? Unfortunately, I've not really been able to find any contemporary accounts to let me know more about the kind of firsthand uh, acceptance of Flora and and what that was like for her. She writes a short, um, I guess you could call it almost like a short autobiographical letter uh, that I found in the National Library of Scotland a few years ago. And in that, she doesn't really mention much about uh, that initial reception or anything like that. She kind of just mentions coming into the, the colony and settling and then talks a lot about the experience during the revolution. I know that there was a ball that took place in late 1774, but I don't know if it was specifically held in her honor. There was another Scotswoman here in Wilmington whenever that happened and she attended the ball leaves a really interesting account saying that it was, she said it was intended as a civility, therefore I will not criticize it. So she was not very impressed uh, from the kind of elite British perspective. She was visiting family in the area, so she was quite snarky about it. But essentially, uh, you know, whether or not it was for Flora, I think she might have actually said it was if it was, because I think she would have known from that Scottish perspective who Flora was. But I think there's there's a lot of the kind of legend just built over time. And I think her story becomes a lot more important in the 19th century, perhaps, than it was in the 18th century, even in North Carolina and in Scotland. Her legend, I think, grows over time. And I think the resurgence in Scottish literature with writers like Sir Walter Scott and their kind of interest in reviving Highland and Gallic culture that I think that really kind of romanticized these stories. And I think that's really when she starts to shine the most. One thing I, I want to really, really touch on, because it's kind of a theme in the episode, and it's something that I think we we started talking about last week with Jeremiah from Alamance Battleground, and is the idea of having to choose a side. You know, in the story and what we know about Flora, even in the Outlander episode, she is described as being emblematic of Scottish rebelliousness, which is funny considering her family might not have actually been in in support of that rebelliousness. But, you know, she goes on to swear allegiance to the crown. I mean, it's not the type of, of position you would think someone would take having helped save the man that inspired a previous rebellion in your home country. And so what was the struggle like for Scots like her, who were suddenly faced with making yet another choice of where to place their loyalty and therefore where to really put their lives on the line? Yeah, I can't imagine being in that position. It was something that that would have been in many ways a pragmatic decision. What's going to save you? What's going to save your family in some cases? And those who were very outspoken on either side obviously drew a lot of attention and a lot of distaste in some cases. And it, it does seem really odd that a lot of Highland Scots, like the McDonald's, who had these ties to, say, the Jacobites, or at least that kind of larger legacy of the Jacobite rebellion, that they would be supportive of the crown and you know this, this kind of government that crushed this, this rebellion. 
and then of course brought on all these major social and economic and cultural changes and so forth to to their homeland. So I think in the end, it, it came down to a practical decision and uh, in a sense, supporting British royal authority would mean siding with a global superpower at the time. And would you rather side with a global superpower or with kind of a ragtag group of colonists who are just kind of getting their stuff together and, you know, who's who's going to be the the most logical choice that you're going to go with? Not only that, when the McDonald's and other groups come over, when they claim land in the colony, they're also going to basically be taking uh, a bit of an oath, I guess you could say, to pay taxes and so forth to the king through the colony. And so there were some elements of loyalty kind of brought into that as well. As I said in our intro, it's easy to think with 250 years of hindsight, of course you would just be a, a, a patriot. You would want to support the establishment of a, a country in your name and for the people who you consider your neighbors. But especially for people like Scottish Highlanders and, and any type of immigrant to this collective of colonies, there's a delicacy with establishing a life and then supporting something that's built with the goal to shake it up, to create something that is completely unknown in the future. And so I, I have to imagine that it cannot have been easy. And it's it's such a, a, a an interesting place to be in for Flora and for so many people like her. Yeah, I think it's interesting that she's such a a linchpin in some ways and these two massive movements like they you know thinking about one rebellion on one side of the Atlantic and then she's thrown into the middle of another one only months really after she she arrives in a new world uh, so I, I know that that had to have been quite overwhelming for her and her family and and I think part of that rebelliousness perhaps that that idea that she was such a leader in that, I think that has been maybe a bit exaggerated at times. Um, there's an interesting kind of a, a vignette, if you will, of her that has been tossed around in a lot of the stories of, of kind of, especially as we're heading towards Moore's Creek, which I know we'll be talking about. But looking at, at the, the Highlanders and their involvement in supporting royal authority in North Carolina, there's a legend that she essentially gave this really rousing speech in Gaelic to all these men who have gathered at Cross Creek to go off and fight against the revolutionaries and, you know, urging them to fight for king and country and that sort of thing. And you know, there's, it's a very riveting story, but we have no real evidence to say that it actually happened. And I think a lot of that actually came from either 19th century sources that were kind of trying to embellish a little bit, which I don't think they really needed to. She had a really cool story to begin with, but that, and then also um, writers like Paul Green, who was a playwright in the early 20th century, we know him best for having written the Lost Colony play that is used every year up in Roanoke. But he also wrote a book or excuse me, a, a drama called Highland Call that used the, the McDonald's as main characters as well as others. And I think that's probably where some of that came from. And I think that that story of her giving this rousing speech, I don't want to speak for Diana Gabaldon, but it's probably the inspiration for what we see in her book and what we saw on the show, because she does give this rousing speech for a crowd of people who are supportive of the king. I kind of liken her when I was writing about this episode to being a celebrity trotted out on a presidential election campaign. She is meant to provide enthusiasm for a cause and that whether she did it in real life or whether we look back 
and someone has embellished that, that is really Flora's story uh, when we talk about the revolution. Though, what role does she play once the fighting begins? It's a lot more humble in some ways than that I think history has has led us to believe. After the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge in February of 1776, uh, her husband, Alan, as well as their son, Alexander, had both been there at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. And uh, amongst a lot of the other men that were there, they were taken captive um, by the revolutionaries. And uh, the Loyalist defeat at Moores Creek had really kind of done a lot to silence a lot of Loyalist uprising over the next couple of years, kind of the first few years of the war. It's rather quiet in North Carolina uh, in terms of that kind of um, civil war that is going to eventually break out by the 1780s. And then the big thing that is going to impact a lot of Scots like Flora is the fact that the Provincial Congress in North Carolina will pass a number of laws that will be directed at loyalists and looking to either deport specific people that they have named uh, that were notorious individuals who were supportive of the crown or to kind of give a blanket uh, law that would say, well, if you are 16 years or older and you're male, you have to give this oath of allegiance to the new state of North Carolina. And this is in 1777. And if you can't give that oath of allegiance, then you have to, to leave. And so for Flora, she's kind of caught in the middle here because early 1776, her husband and, and eldest son are carted off to first to Halifax, North Carolina, which is where the Provincial Congress meets. And then they're taken to Philadelphia uh, a good ways away and kept captive there. And this whole time she's she's kind of left in Anson County and she has you know some kin in the area, but she talks a lot in that short uh, kind of little memoir about what she experienced. And in that, she writes that um, it was pretty dire in some cases. So she also writes about how uh, many of the women that she had been close to before the revolution broke out, how many of them were actually quite bitter about her husband's role in particular in helping raise this company of Highlanders to fight at Moore's Creek. And she's kind of shunned and a social pariah as a result of that. Um, so throughout that whole period, she is going to have to kind of wait it out until finally she gets word from her husband who's been released and they go off to uh, New York. And eventually they're able to find safe passage to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then eventually he is able to secure uh, passage for them back across the Atlantic to Scotland. I said in the introduction of the episode that revolution eclipses everything. And for Flora, it eclipsed her celebrity status. What happens for the final years of Flora's life? So I know that in the, the period of her leaving North Carolina and then uh, leaving North America, she experiences not only that kind of uh, personal hardship of, of uh, finances and having to deal with the revolution and so forth, she also... Uh, breaks her arm twice <laughs> in the process of this, once uh, falling off a horse in North Carolina. And then again, she also does so um, while on board a ship heading home, she falls down a flight of stairs. So, you know, it's the little things that you, you when you start reading about her and reading her experience, you think, gosh, you know, she's just an average person. You know, it really does strip away that celebrity status that you think about. She was experiencing a lot of the same things that other women in North Carolina were, whether they were loyalists or patriots. And so when she she heads back to 
to Scotland. The idea, I think, was to eventually maybe come back to Nova Scotia, but she is able to get back to Scotland. They find out that um, their son, Alexander, actually dies in Nova Scotia. Um, He dies of exposure primarily after having been wounded, and he's trying to make it back to the uh, settlement in Nova Scotia. And then another of their sons actually dies in a shipwreck during the, the conflict. Somewhere in the Atlantic, he's lost at sea. And so they've experienced a lot of loss um, this whole time. And uh, getting back to Scotland on the Lord Dunmore was the name of the the ship. Uh, They, along with um, Flora and her daughter and a few other young women, are able to make their way first to London. They they enter at the the Thames. And she said she she had received the melancholy news of her son's deaths. And um, eventually, of course, with having the accounts of bad health and so forth, they decided to basically make their their way back to Scotland. So I'm just going to share a a quick quote with you. She said, those melancholy strokes by the death of my children, who had they lived with God's assistance, might now be my support in my declined old age, brought on a violent fit of sickness, which confined me to my bed in London for half a year and would have brought me to my grave. And so eventually, of course, by this point in time, you know, she's not exactly young, even by the time she's, you know, experiencing the revolution, she's in her 50s, um, which was, you know, up, up, up an age by that point in time in, in colonial terms. And she's writing most of this in 1789, not long before her death. And, and she eventually resettles on Skye, um, pretty much that full circle story, living not far from where she grew up and where her story began a decade earlier before coming to, to North Carolina. And I think it was something that it's really representative of the opportunities that were available to a lot of immigrants in, in the new world, but also, of course, of, of the possible risks that were involved in that. And it, she concluded by writing, I may fairly say we both have suffered in person, family, and interest without the smallest recompense. I don't know what is going to happen with Flora's depiction on the Outlander TV series. Uh, I know she's not a huge character in the books, but the TV series can always take its own path. And so we'll have to see how Flora is depicted if she is depicted in the upcoming episodes. But as you've just said, I mean, she had quite the journey. She had a life of loss and ends up back where she started, which is, as you said, a, a, a full circle moment for quite the notable figure in both Scotland and colonial North Carolina. Yeah, it's exciting to see the the connections between how the, the story plays out and and how it leans so heavily into history and, and these characters that were actually real people. Absolutely. She was quite the real person with a, a heck of a story. Now, you know, you work with the history of early Scottish people in North Carolina, but you also have it in your family. So who is Farquaad Campbell and how are you related to him? Yeah, so I kind of come to the point now where I joke that if you've lived in law, in North Carolina long enough, if your family's been here long enough, if you shake your family tree, a Scott's going to fall out. Um, so <laughs> I had been doing a bit of genealogical research kind of around the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I've done it off and on for years, but it seemed to be a time when I just had a little bit of extra time to do it, like many of us probably did. And I started, you know, tracing some more branches back that I had not really explored very much, especially on my mom's side of the family, and found that some names started popping up that seemed eerily familiar to me. And one of them was Farquhar Campbell. And it turns out that Campbell 
is my sixth great-grandfather, direct line, and Campbell is uh, or was notoriously involved in colonial politics as well as the Battle of Moore's Creek and was a Scot who settled in um, the 1750s or sometime by the 1750s in the Upper Cape Fear region up around Cross Creek and is possibly the namesake of Campbellton, which became Fayetteville. Uh, We know that he came somewhere from Argyle in Scotland, but we don't really know much about his family life before that. And by the time he comes over to North Carolina, he's kind of already starting to get connected with different political groups and kind of becoming like local civic leadership. He's a justice of the peace. He uh, helps plan the town of Campbellton, becomes you know part of the local and, and provincial government in general, part of the General Assembly, and uh, is a surveyor and commissioner. So he's kind of already getting very involved in stuff. And during the revolution, he ends up uh, at at first, he kind of plays the part of maybe a bit of the revolutionary, and then he fights alongside of the Highland Scots loyalist at Moore's Creek Bridge and is captured. And then he's like, oh, wait, I, I kind of like didn't mean to, to go that direction with things. And he ends up owing his, he ends up uh, pledging his allegiance to the new state of North Carolina and getting a pardon, essentially settles back in North Carolina and eventually becomes a state senator in like the 1790s. So he's kind of a wishy-washy character, but also I think shows how some of these guys tried to kind of play both sides and and find what was going to work best for them in the long run. But you did mention that he possibly was on the Outlander series or in the story. I know these characters very well, but his placement is escaping me. So what role did he play in this story? Do you know? I think he's in the the episode of the Battle of Alamance uh, related to the regulator movement in North Carolina, which was around 1770-71. And I think he plays a very similar role to that of Jamie Fraser, actually, during that whole ordeal. He is on the side of the government, um, on the side of the governor. um, And I think he's kind of part of that larger story of Tryon and his men trying to uh, suppress this growing unrest in the backcountry. Well, that's really fascinating to have a personal connection to someone in this story and even more specifically someone who had quite the role to play in uh, in the real colonial North Carolina. So I do want to underscore just one thing here that if people are looking for other folks to really research and get to know some lesser known figures in colonial North Carolina, you brought up two that I wanted to give you a chance to just give kind of a brief understanding of who they were and and what role they played. So who were these two figures that that you have found interesting uh, during this period who have Scottish ties? Sure. Well, the first one is a woman named Janet Shaw, and she is the woman who actually gives us that account of the ball held in Wilmington in 1774. She arrived that same year on a different vessel, um, and she was visiting her brother, Robert, who held a plantation in um, kind of upper Brunswick County called Shawfields. Um, It was a very large plantation. And so she had connections to the Shaws, to the Rutherfords as well, and other big names in the local kind of Scottish community, as well as the, the larger colonial kind of political sphere as well. And she's an interesting character because in the early 20th century, a diary or essentially a, a letter that was written as a diary was found in the British Museum by a historian and his wife. And they go on to transcribe this and publish this. And it was called uh, The Journal of a Lady of Quality. 
And in this, she writes her entire account of having left Edinburgh, which is where she was from, and uh, having traveled from there to the islands of Antigua and then to St. Kitts and visiting various Scots who had large sugar plantations and family connections and so forth to the Shaws in uh, the Caribbean. And then on to Wilmington, where her and her brother Alexander would be meeting up with their brother Robert and spending some time here. And, and during that period, of course, it's late 1774, going into early 75, and the revolution is just starting to heat up. And she provides a really fascinating perspective, um, kind of an outsider's perspective on what is happening, as well as a really rich picture of colonial life and the environment and nature. And um, of course, take into account that she was an educated upper class woman who definitely had some disdain for colonials <laughs> and their cultural practices or lack thereof. But I think she's really entertaining and fascinating to look at. Her account can easily be found online, transcribed in a lot of digital collections. And the other individual or individuals I mentioned uh, would be the Hogg brothers, Robert, James, and John. And they were all part of a merchant family, essentially, that came and settled in around Wilmington and then kind of spread their networks out into North Carolina from there. Uh, Robert Hogg had come over in the 1750s to Charleston first and ended up in Wilmington as part of a firm called Hogg and Clayton. And then he started his own business with um, another set of Campbells, this time Samuel Campbell, which was another group uh, from Wilmington. And uh, they became very, very successful merchants. But also, like uh, the McDonald's and others, they were thrown into the revolution with a lot of decisions about which side are you going to be on. And in the case of the Hogg brothers, they actually end up being split apart by the revolution. I don't know much about John Hogg's experience, though I know he did kind of take more of the loyalist stance. But Robert Hogg, as a merchant, was someone who was very invested in the empire and with mercantilism. So he knew that he would benefit most from remaining part of that. And he remains a loyalist throughout the conflict and then actually ends up dying in the 1780s. But his brother James, who had set up a store for their company up in Hillsborough, North Carolina, um, he actually ended up uh, being on the side of the revolution and uh, then would become very involved in kind of early state politics and, and that sort of thing until his death in, I think it's 1804. Um, so he's he's buried actually not far away from some of the stuff that, that goes down with the regulator movement of that direction. Yeah, I just find it fascinating that there are some, again, lesser known names that really do have their own compelling story that's unfolding in colonial North Carolina, whether they are the ones that Outlander is focusing on or the ones that you're going to find in a local history book. There's just a lot of colonial history here and a lot of people who uh, on both sides were putting a lot on the line. So I encourage people to look beyond some of the the bigger names and, and find some stories that are fascinating in their own right. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad we got to uh, talk some more, uh, especially about Flora. And I would encourage everyone to uh, go visit Ghost Hill Press and to uh, look out for Kimberly's book, uh, whatever form it may take in the future. I know it's constantly evolving, but uh, Kimberly, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Hunter. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents. Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week when we will set sail through the life 
of the gentleman pirate Steve Bonnet, the real-life inspiration for Outlander's legendary villain Stephen Bonnet, and the subject of a new HBO Max comedy series called Our Flag Means Death. Who was the real pirate that has now spawned two very different television interpretations? Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com slash donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.